So in the spirit of our most recent conversations about mashups of products and things like that, uh-huh. have you seen that Crocs came out recently with a KFC branded shoe? It's not like, oh, there's a little logo on there. Like there's chicken on the shoe. Not like pictures of chicken. A 3D rendering of chicken that's actually on the shoe. What they call them are fried gibbets, which are charms. So they're like the croc charms that you stick in that look like drumsticks and smell like fried chicken. I would like, if we're going to stick with Kentucky Fried Chicken, maybe some coleslaw or the barbecue sauce, the little tub or something. You make fun, but these things are already sold out. Nothing like putting buckets of KFC on your feet. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physicians' practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome back to Touchpoint, now serving number 186. 186, now serving. Does that come with a side of coleslaw? (laughs) It does. (laughs) It does. The first 100 in the uh, restaurant today. Welcome back to episode 186. If you skipped the intro, that made zero sense, but that's okay. We appreciate that you are here. And I'm Reed Smith. That is Chris Boyer. Wearing his branded Crocs under the Zoom call here, so no one can see it. (laughs) Touchpoint branded Crocs. There is a microphone uh, attached to the top. We can put that little Shure microphone as a gibbet on a pair of Crocs. Very expensive gibbet, but a gibbet nonetheless. Yeah, maybe we'll wear it at the next in-person conference. You never know. (laughs) Well, thanks for uh, tuning in. Thanks for uh, coming back for another week of Touchpoint. If this is your first week, welcome. We are Chris and Reed. We host a podcast, which you are now listening to. If you'd like to know more about this particular episode or the show in general, you can uh, surf over to touchpoint.health to learn a little bit more about uh, what we're doing, as well as other shows that are on the Touchpoint network. There's a new one kicking off from True North. Our friends over there are starting a, a new podcast. And we encourage you to check that one out, as well as the exam room, data point, intersection, Gear and Review, The Connected Hospital, the list goes on and on. So again, touchpoint.health is where you can find out more about that. Rate, review, subscribe wherever you happen to be listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, streaming on Spotify, or otherwise. We're going to take a brief pause right here, and we'll be right back with today's episode. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. I encourage all listeners today to, if if they haven't downloaded the Touchpoint podcast bingo card, today is a good day to download it. Today's topic is going to get into some terms that may or may not be actually on the official bingo card, but it will be in the future for sure, because today we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence and the hype cycle. Ah, uh, yes, the Gartner hype cycle. Oh, man, that is something that I look at quite often and, and realistically in the last several months have looked at it a little bit relative to telehealth, which is not exactly what we're talking about today, certainly. 
Uh, it's analogous, but but not specifically what we're talking about. We have, however, talked about AI quite a bit on the show over the years and kind of where it's headed. But it's becoming, I guess, maybe a little bit more common specifically on the chatbot side of the equation, maybe. Yeah, chatbot side, and we've some of the examples that we've given in previous episodes have been on the clinical side in terms of parsing through like large areas of data, etc. But we're noticing now that AI is creeping its way into all aspects of the the industry, so to speak. And particularly, we're seeing organizations now start to consider AI solutions around supply chain, around operational efficiency, even patient flow, which is really kind of fascinating. So we thought today would be really good for us to kind of dive into AI and actually figure out where it actually is in terms of adoption. Absolutely. And so we're going to kick things off talking about the Gartner hype cycle. And so just to kind of set the stage a little bit, for those that have not seen it, uh, you can kind of think of a, uh, a line graph, if you will, is, is what it looks like. But it's an actual graphic presentation, graphical presentation, not a graphic presentation, <laughs> developed and used by, by Gartner. And it's really meant to represent the maturity adoption application, et cetera, of different types of technology. So the hype cycle is not just about AI specifically. It really applies. And that's what I meant earlier when I said talking about uh, telehealth and virtual care and all that kind of good stuff. It's really about any sort of technology and it, and it goes across five stages, right? Yeah, five stages of adoption, so to speak, or maturity. The first phase is, is what they call the technology trigger. And that's where a potential technology breakthrough starts. So it could be various different things that introduce a technology into the marketplace. When we talk about like telehealth and other things like that, they've been around for a while. So they're not in that phase per se, but they may be still kind of lingering in that phase because they haven't had widespread adoption. This is really where these early proof of concept ideas come into play and it starts to generate interest within the industry. But really often in this phase, there's really no usable products that exist and commercial viability is unproven. So it's a very new type of technology. That's phase one. Yeah, absolutely. And then quickly we move into the peak of inflated expectations, <laughs> <laughs> which is maybe my favorite. No, uh, this is again very early on and, you know, publicity, obviously, or, you know, this new thing heightens expectations. So again, we see success stories, testimonials, things like that. There's obviously failures, but a lot of people think, oh my goodness, this is going to change the world, right? That's where the the peak of inflated expectations, that's where that comes from. So again, you've got some something new. Everybody sees this thing. They've never seen it before. They think it's the greatest thing ever and very quickly decide, how can we live without this? And this is now going to be the way we do everything. <laughs> and not surprisingly, the next phase is called the trough of disillusionment. <laughs> so after you get over the peak of inflated expectations, suddenly you drop down and interest wanes because a lot of times these early inflated ideas, they fail to deliver. And this is also a time in the industry where people that are in the technology, there's a lot of people that may jump in, they start to kind of fall out and the market kind of realigns itself, so to speak. There are a few surviving providers that continue to do these products, and those are ones that actually start to gain the more of an investment, and they're actually starting to get more adoption, so to speak, with, with their products or what have you. After everyone is coming out of the trough of disillusionment, this is when the maturity starts to creep in and you uh, get to the slope of enlightenment. <laughs> so now you're coming back up. So you, you're never going to get back to this peak of inflated expectations. Right? Like you're never, if you think about the bell curve, you know, and kind of this line graph, we're, we're starting to kind of go up and to the right now, but it's never going to go back to that inflated expectations because now we have a little bit of history. This is, you know, where we start seeing more instances of how the technology can benefit the enterprise and starting to become a little more widely understood. So again, if you think about like telehealth, for example, you know, we're probably in this area to some degree uh, at this point because now we're starting to realize because we got forced into this, the trigger was really coronavirus for, for telehealth. And then it became where 
we're only going to do telehealth. And then it was like, well, no, we're not. And then we're down and now we're coming back. Right. So, you know, you start seeing a second and third generation products. So again, that maturity starts to kind of come into play and, and then more enterprises, uh, you know, fund pilots, et cetera. But there are some people still kind of hanging back, but you're starting to see it like, okay, maybe there's a roadmap here. There's 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 some sort of a runway. And that runway leads us to the final phase, which uh, I love these titles, the plateau of productivity. That's where a mainstream adoption starts to take off, where viability is more clearly defined and the technology starts to adopt a broader market applicability and the returns start to come in. And this is really when the, that new technology becomes mainstream, so to speak. And so naturally, as new technologies are introduced in the market, Gartner thinks that they fall along these five stages. When we look at AI, actually in the Gartner hype cycle of te- emerging technologies for 2020, where do you think it rests, Reed? I'm going to say we're, st- we're still, I'm going to say we're early. So again, in the five stages, I'm, I'm going early and probably more still on the upslope. I, I don't think we've quite hit the peak of inflated expectations, or maybe we're about there. I don't know. Well, it depends on the type of AI. And so this is kind of a natural segue into Gartner just published a blog post a couple of days ago that highlights some of the five trends that are driving the hype cycle for emerging technologies of this year. So this is their recently published uh, Gartner Hype Cycle of Emerging Technologies, and it highlights 30 technology profiles that will significantly change society and business for the next five to 10 years. Wow. It actually goes into actually 1,700 unique technologies, but they kind of bundle them together in technology profiles. We'll have a link in the show notes, so if people want to go see the Hype Cycle curve, and, you, you know, when you look at this curve, you'll see that AI kind of does fall exactly where you said, Reed, right? It's on the peak of inflated expectations, following some of it falling down to the trough of disillusionment. Yeah, I mean, there's still some a little bit like adaptive machine learning, composite AI, et cetera, that are still somewhat uh, early, uh, still in the innovation trigger phase, and then, like you said, there's some that have, have kind of crested into this peak of inflated expectations. And it's interesting because this particular chart does spell out the time it's going to take that, they, that they're predicting to get to that plateau, uh, which is obviously where, like we mentioned before, you mentioned before about the mainstream adoption kind of happens in that in that area. So that's the goal, obviously. Absolutely. Now, what's also kind of interesting about this emerging technology study that they did is they're putting it up against the fact that we're dealing with this pandemic, uh, coronavirus. And so they actually share two examples that lead off their five trends, kind of give it context. The first is around in China. In most cities, citizens and visitors have to download an app, a health code app that indicates COVID status, right? COVID-19 status to access public and private spaces and services. This app is used widely across China. The importance of this is that this is a technology contact tracing, digital contact tracing is something that's happening, you know, around the globe right now. And there's a second example here too, right, Reed? Yeah, in India, they they talk about an app which uh, travelers are uh, it tells if they're if they're safe to use the rail or air, air travel. UAE uh, recently launched one which uh, also indicates via color if a person is okay, infected, or needs to be quarantined, etc., and has the option uh, for you know hasn't been tested, quote unquote, and it's being used to grant access to air travel. These examples of these apps are actually bundled together by Gartner in profiles, and they're actually calling this this profile a health passport or a pandemic epidemic response technology, which is an interesting new emerging trend profile that they're going to be tracking now in their in their hype cycle. And by the way, the things that we we're talking about have already had a five to twenty percent market penetration rate. So talk about fast adoption of new technology. The pandemic has thrust that upon this, right? It, it does. It's funny because it talks about colors, right? And green, you're good. And yellow that maybe need to be quarantined, etc. cetera. Uh, when I first read this and it said a green screen, I thought like everybody has to buy a green screen. 
like that lives in China. Like that seems excessive, you know. Teams and Zoom works fine. You don't have to have a green screen. But anyway, yeah, it's interesting uh, to see this level of, of penetration. Of course, a pandemic, I guess, will do that and, and drive people to actually uh, actually doing things. But um, in this particular article, they also Gartner also talks about five unique trends that are kind of pushing this along. The first trend is something called composite architectures. And obviously, you know, in the face of all these changes that are going on and also sort of a decentralization that's occurring because we now have a distributed workforce, organizations have to become more agile and have to build responsive architectures to support that. In kind of very classic Gartner consultative speech, they say a composite architecture is made up of packaged business capabilities built on a flexible data fabric. Ooh, flexible data fabric. That is N60 on your card. <laughs> N60. Uh, yes, obviously this this enterprise has four core principles. They say modularity, so it could be you know very very modularized efficiency, continuous improvement, and adaptive innovation. And again, like we said, you know this is bingo heaven right here. We're just using all the bingo terms. What that really applies to is business is shifting, and and the technology has to be adaptive to shift. To go to your mobile phones, to go to you know your computers, even the way you structure your organization has to shift now. The second trend on the list is uh, the overwhelming trust in algorithms, because <laughs> we all trust algorithms. Organizations to shift from trusting central authorities to trusting algorithms. Um, and so these trust models ensure privacy and security of data, providence assets, and identities of people and things. And they believe, Gartner that is, that increased interest in blockchain, I think that's O42 yep. on the video card, will create increased digital authentication and verification options. And there's other things, too, that's kind of built into this whole algorithmic trust that we're seeing. And those could include differential privacy, responsible AI, and explainable AI. Whew, okay, we are really getting in the weeds here. <laughs> responsible AI and explainable AI. Different ways that AI is being, being applied. You know, again, we'll link to this in the show notes so people can go a little bit deeper. Why don't we do this, Reed? We're at a point now where we could do a little break and we'll come back and we'll talk about the remaining three trends and then also how AI specifically, which is part of these trends, is going to change healthcare. Let's do that right after this pause. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. And now moving along to trend number three, Beyond Silicon, also a good documentary. <laughs> so technology is quickly reaching the physical limits of silicon. This has led, they say, to the evolution of new advanced materials, which will enhance capabilities designed to support smaller, faster technologies. So it just sounds to me like stuff's getting more advanced and smaller, which is the trend for everything technology related. And it's going away from silicon. It's actually getting into biochemistry. And mm -hmm. we've heard about this, again, emerging technology, but this is one that's kind of going up the hype cycle, right? So it's coming, it's coming fast and furious. But now using biotech chemistry in place of silicon or quantum architectures in order to catch up with that. Now, they acknowledge that it's currently rudimentary and expensive, but the impact of successful DNA computing and storage options would really transform data storage, 
process parallelism and even computing efficiency that's going to be completely disruptive to our industry. And what's the next one? Formative AI is trend number four. Mm-hmm. Formative AI is a type of AI that's capable of dynamically changing to respond to a situation. It could be you know, where AI can adapt over time to technologies to generate new models to solve specific problems. We even see some of this occurring, you know, where it learns from like chatbots, it learns what people are wanting and it could start to shift and adopt the way your experience looks when you're on your website. But they also say that this formative AI is also being responsible for deep fakes content. You know about deep fakes, right? Yes, and this will come back into play with my recommendation late in the show, actually. (laughs) Okay, great. It's a tie-in right here. But they also say that less nefarious uses of formative AI is things like drug discovery, synthetic data generation, even AI-generated artwork they're starting to see. And those things are starting to get up in that hype cycle. They're going up the peak of inflated expectations. Love it. Which leads us to our fifth trend. Yeah, number five on the list is Digital Me. Also a Tom Hanks movie. <laughs> uh, so they talk about from, from health passports to digital twins. As technology integrates with people, there's more opportunities to create digital versions of ourselves. These digital models represent humans in both the real and virtual worlds. <laughs> I love it. We're Man. talking like that's Tron, right? I mean, I saw that movie. They're just making up stuff now. This is not real. But anyway, an example they have here is a bi-directional brain machine interfaces, or BMIs. I thought that acronym already existed. Anyway, are brain-altering wearables that enable two-way communication between human brains and computers or machine interfaces so that you can wear it or implant it, like an EEG, for example, in an individual's mental state? We've heard about this. They're already planting embeddable devices in to solve challenges with epilepsy, for example, in the brain. Or you hear about people that may have have a prosthetic limb and they're using BMI technology to actually move the limb certain ways, which, you know, it sounds science fiction-y, but it's actually real. There's a lot of actual specific applications that are her- happening. But again, this is early stages. Most of this is ex- experimental. I should never have to take my shoes off again at TSA. That's really what this is. Like, what's <laughs> happening here? I mean, this is this is just wild. Uh, so I think, again, this is one of those things that uh, I'm not sure next year specifically, like we're all going to get. Like, this isn't the next pre-check, staying with the airport theme, but um, maybe eventually. Here's one application that they actually call out, which I thought would be a great way to end leaving this article, is to boost stimulation of your brain alertness in fatigued employees or change the mood of an irritable teacher by applying currents to their brain. Oh, boy. That sounds scary to me. I don't know about you. You just thought the shock collar for the dog was cruel. Let's move this along. We've got another article here from Forbes that uh, actually takes us into healthcare specifically. Not that we haven't been talking about healthcare, but this specifically said, uh, talks about three ways artificial intelligence will change healthcare. And this is new within the last you know couple of weeks, 10 days or so. So some recent information for sure. And of course, they first address the fact that AI can seem intimidating. But for most people in the medical profession, we're seeing now AI as an accelerant and an enabler, not necessarily a threat. They actually share three examples of how AI will change healthcare, and they do it with specific use cases. So let's go through each one in turn and and try to address them. And they're naturally, when we talk about them, it'll make sense. The first is around speed. They say that using AI can make your organization faster or can make the application of healthcare delivery faster. And this is very important in healthcare. And they share a use case read of the viz.ai stroke detection platform that's actually in, in being applied right now. Every minute of reduced time to treatment in stroke detection can potentially save 1.9 million patient brain cells. The deep learning algorithms in this platform can save several minutes of stroke detection. 
you think about the implication of that, if you if you start to use this technology, AI technology, to identify stroke, you could potentially save hours of potential brain diminishing capacity. And they say here that on average, patients that were part of the study using this technology, they went from being bedridden, needing 24-7 nursing care, to walking out of the hospital without assistance in a short period of time. What a great use case for how AI, if used appropriately, can really hasten a diagnosis and treatment for existing known conditions. Pretty crazy. Next one has to do with cost or uh, you know how expensive things are, and and it's not a real shocker. You can Google this if you don't believe me, but healthcare costs uh, continue to be in the news. <laughs> the idea that AI could help things be more efficient, uh, I think, is an interesting idea and certainly something that would make sense. Like, let's look at machine learning, for example, and computer vision, they call it. The more information, I mean, this is true, I guess, all data. The more information you get in one place at the same time, the more powerful it becomes. And so the, the ability to be able to make decisions quickly, being able to go through that kind of that Rolodex of information is where, you know, potentially this becomes more efficient. They share a couple of examples here, one that uses machine learning and computer vision to rapidly characterize cell types from a tiny fingerprint of blood. But another one that I actually heard Dr. Vardabidian in his podcast talk about before is a technology called Suki, which is a clinical digital assistance that uses NLP, your natural language processing, to type up notes that doctors would otherwise have to type. So basically... Mm-hmm. You could talk to this device and it will real time track your doctor's notes. They say that this technology has proven to show it reduces documentation time by 76% and their new extractor, their new intent extractor, which is the the machine learning capacity behind this, has been benchmarked at a 99.5% accuracy. That's pretty significant. It really is. And that goes into the next one, which is specifically talking about accuracy. And certainly accuracy matters. I mean, that's obviously a big deal in healthcare is diagnoses and being able to make sure that we're bringing forth the right medication at the right time and, and, you know, being able to help. And so, you know, some examples they give Google AI could outperform doctors for certain types of breast cancer detection. Don't at me. I'm just reading the article. Um, And I understand there's some nuances there, but the point being, again, quickly being able to roll through all that information is one of the you know real opportunities, I think, of, of AI. So more accurate modeling can lead to better informed decisions. Uh, so, for example, they say uh, as non-emergency care rebounds, providers need alerts to when their own COVID-19 positive test emissions are rising. You know, as we turn back on... Uh, all these services, which most everybody has. Uh, There's been some little back and forth on that. You know, certainly keeping up with pandemic-related numbers is important. Absolutely. And I know there are a number of companies that are doing this either on a local level or a statewide level, and health systems are kind of weighing in on this as well. The CDC and others really are are all trying to work together. And, and we've shared some of those stories both here and also on our TPS5 podcast about uh, some of these technologies that are happening. But overall, when you look at AI and applying AI in healthcare, one of the biggest challenges that they walk away with is, even though it is faster, less expensive, and more accurate, it really requires something that's not really technology related at all. And that's alignment. Mm. The whole promise of improved speed, cost and accuracy is insufficient to meaningly in fact, impact patient care. They reiterate here in this article that products have to be developed with a clear understanding of clinical workflows. In order to overcome inertia and risk changes, careful consideration has to be also given to the economic incentives of doctors and the organizations that employ them. So very decidedly not a technology challenge here. That's one interesting thing about just technology in general. I mean, take AI out of the equation. At some level, people are still involved, and that could be how you interpret and make sense of the data. 
we've got to be willing to use it and and see how we get to this level or the plateau, if you will, to really make it make sense and be worthwhile. And that's a natural lead in to the interview that we're going to be doing, Reed. Uh, I, I recently had a chance to sit down with Michael Wolmering. He's with Inspire 11, which is a consultancy firm here in the Twin Cities. He has a big background in applying AI in other industries. Right now, he's working with a number of healthcare companies on setting up AI Center of Excellences. I had a chance to sit down with him and have a chat and talk about some of the the challenges of doing that. After this break, we'll come back and we'll hear from Michael. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert segment of the podcast, and today I'm delighted to be talking to someone that actually lives here in the Twin Cities where I'm at, but we haven't had a chance to meet yet, Michael, because of the pandemic, but I look forward to when we do, and that is Michael Wolmering. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Chris. Great to be here. Well, I'm excited to talk to you about the topic we have at hand, but before we do, people listening in may not know about your background. Would you mind sharing them a little bit about yourself? By way of introduction, I've been in management consulting for over a decade. And I really started uh, my career, you know, 10 years ago now with a a very much focus in on data and analytics and and how we can use information and data to really help support on the provider side. So really focused on the uh, health system, healthcare space. Uh, Most of my background has been really focused on population health, analytics strategy, technology operations, and really drive and performance improvement within the provider space. Today, I'm focused a lot on uh, the digital consulting side. So I work for a digital consulting firm called Inspire 11. And really, we're all about helping our customers manage and thrive through disruption. And it's kind of fitting for the state that we are in today with the pandemic and with COVID-19, really helping Uh, organizations, especially on the healthcare side, understand how they can really deliver and and use data to drive through what could be considered a a difficult time. Yeah, you know, I always say that our industry is very much data rich, but information poor. And I think that's a key differentiator. We track a lot of data, but using that data to truly gleam business insights is a big challenge for organizations. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. No, I agree 100%. I I think, uh, especially in healthcare, if you think about it, we're gathering uh, large quantities of of data daily. Um, You think about this term big data, right? And just the the velocity of the amount of information that we're gathering and the fact that it's coming from many different areas. So if you think about within a, a hospital, it could be coming through our EMR system, our electronic medical record system. Or if you think about outside of the hospital, Outside of the four walls of the hospital, it could be coming from wearables or uh, IoT technologies. And that's all new data that's being consumed in the healthcare space that we need to figure out how do we actually gleam some valuable information that can help our patients or help our customers, if you're on the payer side, do some very valuable things with that information. One of the most valuable things is this buzz term that we've heard a lot about, and lately I've been hearing some maybe negative connotations around the buzz term, which is AI or artificial intelligence. And that's really the the, the meat of what we're going to get into in our interview today. Data and AI have an inextricable link together. It's extremely important to realize that AI being a buzzword is, is essentially needs to have a data component to it. Data is what drives the ability for us to do innovative things with artificial intelligence. Uh, One of the ways that I usually like to frame up AI is really thinking about it in the way that it it provides our ability to infer meaning from data. And it allows us to do that in a very rapid pace, right, through stuff like machine learning or deep learning, those types of uh, AI techniques or technologies And it's all about how do we manage large quantities of data. So AI really helps us to process large amounts of of information and and data and gather good insight from that data. Well, it's, it's incredibly important. It also has been for many organizations one of the big inhibitors to launching a truly AI strategy is because of the various challenges around us building data. Health systems, healthcare provider, healthcare delivery 
tends to have these pools of data all over the place. But synthesizing those together, you get back to those age-old challenges around interoperability, around you know data siloing, et cetera. Tell us a little bit about your perspective on that. You hit one of the number one challenges in, in healthcare today around data. It's just that fragmentation, right? So if you think about a healthcare system and how data flows in, there's many different technologies, different EMR systems, even across hospitals and the health system that really aren't integrated, right? And that makes interoperability a, a challenge. There's also various levels of data maturity and in, in management, the way that we govern data. So data at one hospital might look very different than data at another hospital. And that drives a challenge for when we want to actually gleam any sort of insight from it, the ability to actually marry that information or data together to really see, for example, like an episode of care and understanding as our patients may go from a primary care setting to a hospital setting, tracking that journey and using that information to be able to track that patient journey is is important, but also very much a challenge with the fragmentation of how data is set up. And then think about, too, in this world where we're becoming very much digital health consumers, you mentioned earlier about Fitbits and other types of digital health trackers that are out there. Isn't that compounding the situation a little bit? Because now we have data that we're aggregating that our EMRs and, and other you know established data sources that have data governance around them are struggling with as well. And it's also stuff that we are consuming that we don't even know potentially how to gleam the most amount of benefit out of it. So we're still, legacy healthcare is still working through how do we gleam as much insight out of EMR data and out of clinical and claims data, let alone starting to think into the future about how do we use wearable data to really help our patients? How do we use different IoT technologies? and the data that we're gathering from that to help our patients. If we think about that patient-centered model, it's all about using that information to really drive uh, the way that we deliver care to our patients. And I hear about AI being applied in healthcare in very specific use cases. And a lot of the first use cases have been around clinical care delivery. And in particular, you know, pulling great vast data sources of clinical tracking of maybe disease states and other things to assess and, and maybe make some, some interesting applications around that. But AI has a much broader application across our delivery model. Would, would you agree? I would agree. And actually, I have, a, I have a great example from my past that kind of shows that it, it can be leveraged just outside of, let's say, care delivery or, or diagnostics. Uh, so I spent some time uh, consulting at a seven-hospital uh, healthcare system in kind of the upper area of, of New York State. And we were developing and, and creating this kind of data management and analytics center of excellence. And really the center initial focus was all around how do we use advanced analytics and AI technologies that were focusing on supporting the operating and cath lab room optimization. So if we think about uh, operations within a hospital or a healthcare system, how can we actually use AI techniques for optimization and really helping to eliminate waste do more added value and productive work, and then uh, developing strategies around, especially in the operating room or the cath lab room space, how do we look at optimization? One of the areas that we focused in was on the scheduling side. So using data and using AI techniques to look at how we can optimize scheduling, uh, whether that's in the OR space around block scheduling, and being able to look at uh, the optimization there, or even just on the patient scheduling side. So it's very applicable in terms of the use of data, not only just for things like diagnostics or precision medicine, or even on the radiology side, you're seeing it used a lot uh, in terms of being able to scan images and, and find errors or anything in, in a kind of a radiology image, it could be used on the operational uh, side for performance improvement. Well, the way you describe that, to me, that makes total sense that these are some really great applications of that. But doing that presented a, a series of challenges, didn't it? 
It did. It absolutely <laughs> did. I, yeah, I have to say that uh, if, if you think about data and the use of AI, it's not just a, a light switch that you can flip on, right? right. It, doesn't, it doesn't just you, you flip your switch in your room and all of a sudden AI is happening. It really takes a concentrated effort. And, and really, I, I like to focus in you know, five major areas. It's the five are you have strategic alignment, you have leadership and data governance, you have analytical complexity, technology, and then enterprise integration. And among those five, the, the place that you know most people want to start is all around the strategy and how do we align the strategic. But I actually take a step back and I think more about the enterprise integration. What I mean by that is if we think about health systems, they really work in, in siloed or states of fragmentation. And really, we need to start thinking about how do we break down those barriers uh, before we can actually even operationalize or even put a strategy in place. Uh, around AI. And it's really critical, Chris, as we think about that enterprise integration, how do we design a plan for how AI-driven outcomes will be pushed out to the organization and really utilized by our clinicians and, and business staff? Um, I always think about, um, as we think about executing on, a, on an AI plan and we think about enterprise integration, we want to think about the way that our infrastructure is set up. So there's this topic of, of modern data architecture and having the software, the architecture, the infrastructure set up to handle our ability to actually analyze large quantities of data and, and perform AI techniques. But on the softer side of healthcare, it's, it's about how do we complement uh, our physicians with the ability to use data in collaboration with human intervention? Because I always say, you know, AI is really great at computing and, analy and analyzing large quantities of data, but it really takes skilled humans to understand the AI outcomes and apply them correctly. So it's really that complement between a clinician and the data that can really help push us into the future of healthcare. Yeah, it's almost like there's a whole nother set of skills that the modern physician or clinician needs to needs to adopt, which is becoming very much focused on taking data and finding those insights so that the AI models can can start to consume that and and provide value. Is that is that right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think if, if you think about a lot of the pushback in currently in healthcare has been around, well, AI, I don't want AI to take over treating my patients. And that mindset shift is very key to understand that AI is really all about helping to, you know, fix things around like automation. So taking a lot of these manual administrative processes that really bog down a clinician's time and don't give them that time to be able to you'll know, work with the patient, being able to use AI data to help drive some of that automation so that we can give more time back to our clinicians and that they can actually spend more time with the patient, spend more time analyzing, diagnosing those most important things that, that clinicians do today. You're describing a sort of a chicken before the egg kind of situation because in order for them to find the value in it, you almost have to teach them that there's value in it. Are those some of the challenges that you face when you work with organizations? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the other five that I mentioned was around uh, leadership. You really want strong leadership, and that starts with uh, the chief medical information officer or, or even a chief data officer. And they're really the leaders that are driving this development and understanding that AI is a form of driving a data culture that's going to help support your organization. It's not an inhibitor to your organization. And really helping everyone in the healthcare side, either a clinician or someone that works more on the business operations side, that AI is really iterative, right? It's not a point-in-time solution that could be forgotten. It's not a technology or a platform or system that just gets implemented and you kind of forget about it, but it's how do we use AI, how it evolves, and, and really that education side on, on how it can be applied in everything that we do in healthcare today. You used a term or a title that I haven't heard before, a chief data officer. I've worked in health systems for many years, and quite frankly, that title never has shown up in the many health systems that I've worked with. How are you seeing the, the industry today? Are, are, are more health systems starting to embrace this model? 
I believe they are. So if you if you look at larger uh, healthcare systems, such as like Cleveland Clinic, they really have been focusing their artificial intelligence efforts since 2019. So they established what they call the Center for Clinical Artificial Intelligence back in March of 2019. And really that focus was all around how do we develop clinical applications for AI and really focusing a lot on a subsection of AI called machine learning and using machine learning technology to help support some of their more predictive analytics and and treatment planning. The whole phrase around chief data officer is a term that comes from other industries, right? So other industries have probably been making large investments in AI. And as healthcare gets up to speed, the ability to have a chief data officer or chief digital officer is really going to help drive that transformation that's most critical. Like many other things, this is where healthcare can really understand and take lessons from outside industry and bringing that in. I, I think it's unfair for us to say that we're behind the time, so to speak. But in the case of data and AI, it seems that we have a lot of catching up to do. We certainly do. And, and I think it's it's okay. I think the state of healthcare today and the way that we're starting to use AI is very good, actually. And, and though we may not be at the levels of, let's say, uh, you know, a, a retail space or an agricultural space, we haven't actually had a lot of the systems to be able to gather the amount of data that those industries have had, uh, especially on the financial side. Financial uh, institutions have had technologies that have been able to capture a lot more data. And as you think about healthcare and healthcare technology, especially around the EMR, that's fairly new in terms of other technologies across other industries. So our ability to now start thinking in a way that we have this data, we're capturing it, let's talk about how we can actually put a plan in place to drive our organization to be more data focused and utilize it to gain that insights that will be critical to to the success of the organization. Where are you seeing, like, if organizations that even some people listening in today, they may be thinking, oh, this is something that we really need to start to embrace. What are some of the steps that they're taking to to start moving down this path? I think one of the, the critical steps that, that a lot of health systems start to take is you think about you have your um, you have your business side and then you have your actual clinician or physician side. And, and it's that alignment and setting a clear set of, of business, clinical, and AI goals across the health system that's that's very important, right? You want to start understanding how do we articulate these goals, how do we provide value to the organization, and how does that get set from you know the C-suite level and then work its way down throughout the organization or throughout the different hospitals in the healthcare system. Yeah, I could just imagine in a boardroom that a lot of C-suite people would probably, when you say, what are your AI goals? They may they may <laughs> roll their eyes a little bit right now because that's not top of mind to them. Yet there's tremendous value if they start going down this path. I think if you think about it, your people around AI are your greatest asset. So being able to focus on teams uh, that can actually have the knowledge, have the education to support AI thinking and being able to do things like data science work, that's even a newer topic, I believe, inside healthcare is, you know, the use of data scientists to propel our AI ability. You know, speaking from Inspire 11's perspective, we always use the term, and this is a this is a really um, you know common term, but fail fast, not often. So being able to have the you know not only the infrastructure in place, but also the people that can you know test out AI, drive the culture through the organization, and really do some experimentation. It's okay to fail as long as you correct that failure and look to achieve success in the future. Um, that's really what AI is all about. And, and the more that you can utilize the techniques, the more that you can learn about how it's going to best fit inside your healthcare system or organization. Using the term fail fast and fail often, right? Though sometimes in health system, failure often means, you know, clinical failure, but that's not what we're talking about here, right? Yeah, correct. It's it's not really what we're talking about. It's more on how do we you know, we have this data, uh, let's do an experiment to figure out how we can uh, best leverage it to gain insights that are really going to help uh, our clinicians or, or help our performance improvement activities. If we do fail, let's do it fast, right? Let's figure out, you know, what works, what doesn't, and then let's correct it so we don't continue to fail. 
in this day and age, it's even more important for us to become more experimental in terms of our approaches. Because if one thing the pandemic has done is really kind of honed in on where some of our potential shortcomings are as, as an industry. Absolutely. I mean, you even look at, and I know that remote patient monitoring and telehealth are very big topics now, and they fit actually very nicely into AI. There's a lot of data that's being captured from remote patient monitoring and and telehealth. That's all new data because those are items or technologies that we didn't really utilize in the past because we could do face-to-face. You could visit your doctor where now we're doing a lot more virtual visits and and we're having that data. So being able to understand how we can utilize that data in the future will be um, very important, actually very valuable. Because telehealth, Chris, is not going away. Uh, It may slow or plateau a little bit, but given the pandemic and and COVID-19, we'll see the use of those types of technologies more, which gathers additional data that we need to figure out how to best leverage. That whole gathering of additional data, anytime you say that, right, if you don't have that solid data first kind of culture or that data standardization culture, that could cause people a little bit of a pause. But, you know, as you look towards where the future may be, I think that AI and having an AI approach towards restructuring your your offerings in the healthcare world is, is going to be critical. Where do you see the future state of healthcare and particularly in intersecting with AI? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I love thinking about the future, right? Pulling out that crystal ball and saying, what's healthcare going to be like in five to 10 to 20 years? When I think really about AI, it's, it's a continual investment, right? I, I don't see AI going away. I don't see, obviously, data is not going away. If anything, we're going to continue to find ways to gather more data. Data-driven cultures are going to become um, more prevalent in the healthcare space, whether that's on the provider side or on the payer side. But I really believe just continual investments, but especially looking at niche areas that will gain traction. So things like conversational AI, for example, uh, a patient may call into a call center or be working with their payer, and you're going to have an AI-powered assistant that's going to guide you through the process. And and though that may sound scary, it's really all about being able to detect levels in your voice to see if you're calm, if you're frustrated, to be able to guide you appropriately. Other things around like advancements and and deep learning, which is an AI technique to really look at how do we continue streamlining uh, those manual administrative processes and how do we do automation. And then third, uh, advancements in uh, natural language processing, or NLP, is really going to help us as we gather more uh, data that's unstructured, data that's hard to understand. But being able to use techniques like NLP will really be able to help us you know, capture that unstructured data and really start to analyze it and understand it more. So those investments in, in niche areas, well, AI as a whole will continue to grow into the future. Yeah, I just recently gave a presentation on conversational marketing and the importance of that to truly understand the voice of the customer. And I think that's really the goal here is that everything that we can do actually gives us better insight into A, what our customers want, which is a big driving factor in healthcare redesign. But also it helps us to understand what we're doing and how we're addressing those needs much better. If you think about uh, healthcare now, it's it's a lot around uh, the patient experience experience and even consumerism, right? And and being able to use AI to help our patients and deliver the best experience possible is going to be only only more critical as time goes on within the healthcare space. Because if we're not doing it, then other competitors outside disruptors in the space will do it better for us. Absolutely. Healthcare has become a very competitive uh, environment. uh, And that's not to say that that's a bad thing. But if you want to be at the forefront of medicine and, and healthcare as an organization, being able to make investments in AI and really setting up your good data driven culture within your organization is is going to be critical to be able to compete into the future.
Totally agree with you 100% on that, Michael. And I am a person that is very much a data first kind of person. So I really enjoy this conversation. Michael, people listening in that may want to know a little bit more about you and Inspire 11, what's a good way for them to find you online? So there's a couple ways that, that you can find me directly and then learn more about the organization I work for. So for direct content, usually LinkedIn's the best. So if you just go into uh, my LinkedIn, Michael Wolmerin, you'll find me there. I actually have an article written out there that focuses on AI and centers of excellence and how do we actually put a strategy together and operationalize an AI center of excellence. And then from an Inspire 11 uh, perspective, the best way is to go to our website. So it's inspire11.com. And you can find out more information and uh, reach out, get in uh, contact with us uh, through that website. Well, I strongly encourage that they do that, both reach out to you individually through LinkedIn, but also through the website. Michael, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciated it. Yeah, no, thank you, Chris. All right. And special thanks to Michael for coming on the show. Uh, AI is one that seems further out than it really is, I think, in most cases. And kind of like the virtual cure telehealth stuff was for a lot of folks. And, you know, now here we are. So appreciate him coming on the show and uh, sharing some knowledge. Absolutely. Of course, we had the conference last week. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yes. The Healthcare Marketing and Physician Strategy Summit was virtual last week. And uh, there were a number of people that actually participated. It was kind of a good event. For those of you who did sign up and maybe didn't get a chance to see all of the different sessions or, or keynotes, don't worry. You have 90 days in which you can go online and you can actually stream some of those live and on demand, right, so to speak. It was just a great conference overall. I really enjoyed that. And some of the people that were keynoting there will be on future episodes of this podcast. So stay tuned. There you go. And we've got a couple of other uh, conferences uh, and different things coming up. And I'll talk a little bit about uh, what ShishMed is doing. We have two conferences coming up. I've been lucky enough to be on kind of a subcommittee helping with some of this stuff. And the first one is actually not too far away, like less than a month away, September 14th through 16th, Navigating a New Reality. Um, and so this is uh, kind of a joint presentation between ShishMed and the AHA's Center for Health Innovation. This is going to be really cool. And it's a virtual conference that will connect array of uh, key leaders and look at this kind of new era of care delivery post-COVID. Again, September 14 through 16. In addition, the ShishMed Connection Bites is October 26 through 28. So that will have some additional opportunities for workshops, seminars, uh, social networking opportunities, etc. will be a great, great time as well. We will be adding these to our weekly newsletter that comes out, also highlighting a binary fountain webinar that's coming up and some other opportunities. And in October, don't forget, I'm going to be at the Smash Conference, which is focused on the post-acute space. I'm going to be doing a, a virtual webinar there. You can find links as well in our show notes where that conference and to sign up if you're in that space. And then, um, you know, I, it seems like everything is going to be virtual moving forward here, Reed. Yeah, I think so. The Healthcare Internet Conference, it's also on the email. Uh, if you haven't, you can go to the website, touchpoint.health, sign up for our weekly email. It comes out every Monday. Quick five or six stories from around the industry, uh, as well as some of the links to things like what we're talking about right now, which is uh, the conferences that are coming up. Lots of ways to connect with us, albeit online and virtual, but we encourage you to do so. All right, uh, let's move our way towards some recommendations. What do you have today? Reed, I'm going to recommend a limited series that just released for Netflix that I watched the first episode and I love it. It's called High Score. It's about the history and evolution of video games. And the first episode alone was just amazing because it started talking about Space Invaders and how that was created. And then um, Missile Command, if you remember the old Missile oh, Command yeah. games. Two college kids that dropped out of college because they figured out how to replace the motherboard of Missile Command and upgrade the game. And then also into Pac-Man. Pac-Man, by the way, a video game that was designed to appeal to women uh, because women didn't play a lot of video games. If you're a video gamer, I would recommend it. There are six episodes that kind of go through all variety of different things of the uh, evolution of video games. And um, it's just a lot of fun and it's very interesting. So on Netflix, it's called uh, High Score. Nice. 
I am going to recommend a YouTube playlist. For those uh, that are fans of Kevin James, this will be great. If you're not, I, just a quick reminder, obviously he's been in a lot of movies, TV shows, etc. But Kevin James has his own YouTube channel. Uh, I happened across a particular video. It's kind of like a YouTube suggestion one day. And then realized he has a whole bunch of these. He has edited himself into very popular movies as a sound guy. So these clips are him as the sound guy in these movies. And it may be the funniest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> a lot of stuff you've seen, obviously, there's Star Wars, Rocky, The Notebook, Joker, Braveheart, A Star is Born, I Am Legend, Inception, etc. My favorite is probably No Country for Old Men. There is a clip, if people remember, where um, they're in the gas station convenience store. They're having this like real creepy conversation back and forth. Anyway, I'm not going to spoil it, but... It, oh man, it is so funny. And, and also, I Am Legend is really good as well. That's a really good one as well. Anyway, so that's what I'm recommending. Uh, Kevin James as the sound guy. So the name of the playlist is Sound Guy. If you go to his YouTube channel, you can uh, find it pretty easily. You shared that with me this weekend. And oh my gosh, I just cracked up so much. And I, I ended up going through and watching a number of them. They're hilarious. Oh, they're so good. It's a really amazing. Like how well, I, if you want to see like, it's not my favorite one, but the Joker, the color editing and correction for that to make it appear as if he's in, it's unbelievable. I mean, just it is absolutely unbelievable how good it is. All right. Well, there it is. Another episode. Thanks again for listening. Uh, again, touchpoint.health is the website. If you will rate, review, subscribe, wherever you happen to be listening. That is uh, still a great way for people to find us. Certainly tell colleagues, coworkers, aunts, uncles, friends, neighbors, whoever uh, about the show. We would certainly appreciate it. Word of mouth. Even though this is a digital medium and a digital show, word of mouth is still a great way to let other people know about the show. If you'd like to uh, connect with us, you can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn. Let us know what you think. Let us know who you'd like to see us uh, talk to, visit with, interview, topics to cover, etc. For Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.